Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. They take off to a um, Caribbean island, so since my wife was going through her schooling and stuff like that at that time, we haven't been able to do anything with them for a couple of years. Yeah. So my wife's working tonight so that uh, we can go. (laughs) Yeah. She's paying for the trip, huh? (laughs) She's paying for the trip. Good to see you, Matt. How doing? Good. Matt, you were the only one that wasn't here on Tuesday. And I don't necessarily want to bore everybody, but I'm quite willing to cover some of the same material. But one of one of the things I did was run down a little bit of the uh, psychoanalytic stuff and how it pertains to, to Ephesians. I think it pertains to all that Paul is doing. But Ephesians 2 is actually structured very similarly to what Paul is doing in Romans, using some of the same vocabulary and same picture. I'm a little unclear as to what that part of that you might already know and understand. Not very much, so I'd be glad to hear a little bit about what you talked about in class. Okay, and if you have any questions, stop me and they will answer <laughs> all of your questions. The fundamental idea that I'm working with, that I think Paul is working with in Ephesians, the blog that I did this morning actually ties into this a little bit. You know, what what is the nature of evil and how is evil overcome? Understanding creation ex nihilo is a kind of opening to that. But the picture in Ephesians, you know, obviously we have this cosmic redemption. Christ is all in all, we're seated at the right hand of God. And the picture of recapitulation, you know, is that we we did that already. So Irenaeus is really using Ephesians 1.10, is that right? For the doctrine of recapitulation. You know, it's really from Irenaeus, recapitulation, that we go to, I think Origen is, he is not innovating in his doctrine of apocatastasis. He's just building on what he's received. And I think part of that is clearly uh, what Irenaeus is doing. And so two things come together in this chapter, and that is that this cosmic redemption, Colossians and Ephesians, there is this maybe the most broad-based cosmic redemption in the New Testament. But then we also have a profound depiction of the problem of evil. And I think the two things have to be tied in together. That is, the, the defeat of evil is in this recapitulation, in this apocatastasis. And that's what I'm going to try to run down for you tonight in a kind of practical way. The thing I didn't do for them, and I hope to get there if we can, I'll try to move a little faster. And that is, I think that all of this then ties into what Walter Wink is doing. Walter Wink gives us a very practical picture of his picture of, of oppression, his picture of the what he calls the domination system. What is being described is the justification, the economy of Wink's justification system. The the way that I introduce this, and I think we're in a kind of period in which people are doing uh, identity on the basis of sexuality, LGBTQ, or on the basis of race, whether it's white racism. I, I tend to be less critical of a kind of black identity because there's the sense that that you almost need to read there that too and I, that would be my criticism of somebody like James Cone who I admire very much but the the danger even with Cone's understanding is that he in taking up a kind of reification of blackness there may be a failure to to deconstruct the the problem in the first place of the reification of whiteness is that too strong those of you who have done James Cone you know, the cross and the lynching tree. I think we almost have to read 
James Cone, it's a necessity, but I, I think he can, he's taken that too far. That is, there can be a radical black liberation theology that is built upon blackness. And so the, the problem is the problem that I think Paul is addressing in the issue of circumcision and uncircumcision. That is, that the Jewish problem is that they would reify the law. There's nothing wrong with the law. There's nothing inherently wrong with circumcision. But what Paul is arguing in both Romans and Galatians, and I think is working on there in, in this chapter in Ephesians, is that circumcision taken as an identity, you know, that's what he says to the Galatians. Oh, you want circumcision to be your identity? Oh, why don't you just go ahead and emasculate yourselves? It's really talking about a kind of sex change operation. That's taking it too far. But the I, I think what, what we're encountering in Paul then, I'm, I'm just trying to say this is not a particular problem with Judaism. And that's not what Paul, Paul is saying the problem that the Jews have is the problem that all people have. And he's illustrating that here, and that's the way he begins the chapter. That we've all said, you know, we're all subject to this kind of enslavement, including himself. Would it be fair to say, in some sense, that's what Walter Wink is doing in uh, his third way? In other words, let's take whiteness and blackness. Uh, there, Obviously, there, there's no doubt of um, the, the whiteness power structure. And so, obviously, uh, if, if you're black, you're, you're fighting for, hey, you know, where's the equality here? And in some sense, as you're mentioning Cone, I guess without the church, Cone makes sense. In that sense, I'm not, I, I, I like um, uh, Cone. But uh, the, the third way is really, what does this look like in Jesus, right? What, you know, that becomes really any issue. What you know, the cir circumcised and uncircumcised, and each probably has their complaints. And ultimately, what is what does it look like in this new creation of sorts? I mean, would that be fair? Yeah, it's almost like you, you need, in other words, a part of a liberation theology. This is not a critique of all liberation theology, because some of it escapes this, is that it then uh, commits the fallacy, you know, that it, it, it is addressing it would, through violence, uh, institute uh, the kingdom of God. And and I think that the violence is built into this reified identity. You, you are correct. In other words, there's almost the sense that in, in the black experience, there, there almost needs to be this affirmation of, of blackness, but that that then can also uh, turn out uh, as a kind of that, its own fallacy. There was a class um, that we had, you know, we had Alan in Mexico. We had, um, I forget the guy's name in India. Juno, yeah. Yeah. And there was somebody else in that class. Um, oh, uh, a guy from Australia, I think it was. And it was interesting because everybody pointed out, regardless of uh, race or color, everybody pointed out power. Like when I was working in Liberia, there were like 14 different tribes, but whatever tribes in control, they would dominate the other tribes. And that's what caused all the conflict um, there. And, and, you know, you have uh, Australia, the Aborigines, you know, and the power over them. I don't, I don't know the whole power thing. And uh, Walter Wink really hits, hits with me. So I added a note to that. Jim has been sending me stuff on Hannah Arendt. And I thought Hannah Arendt had an interesting take on this. And that is that she actually distinguishes between power and violence. That is that when you turn to violence, there is the sense that that's a, a sign that you've lost power. Whereas the power of Christ and the power that we're talking about does not need to resort to violence. I mean, that's the whole point of resurrection power, resurrection life. I mean, she's not a Christian. I don't, I don't know that she's... A believer of anything. The the domination system that Wink is describing, you know, he's, he is using the language of power. But I, th I think we can make that kind of distinction. Uh, this is must be where I depart from what Jason used to say. You know, he used to think power per se was the problem. 
Well, no, I think actually we're given power in Christ to face down the domination systems because the, the what we have in Christ is in fact an undoing of those systems. That is the system of violence. This is something every father knows. You know, once you lose your temper with your kids, oh, they've won. <laughs> you already lost. And, and so too, I think, that the state can resort to capital punishment, to war, to to violence, because that is the the basis of but if somebody has power like Christ has over death, well that disempowers the whole system. That would be my my one critique of Wink, I think. And not a critique really, because it's just a matter of semantics more more than anything. But in, in trying to say, you know, you were dead in your trespasses, and then he describes that you walked according to the course of this world. I assume that what's being described is a universal thing. This is a world system. I think that what's, that is what Wink is describing. I think that's what Paul is describing. And I think we should be able to work out this universality. In other words, we should be able to name this thing and say how it is that uh, Christ has, you know, I've done a bit of this with Yo John Howard Yoder in his radical subordination. You know, this is, everybody turns to Romans and says, oh, well, Romans 13, you know, we've got to obey the state. Well, that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, he's talking about a kind of radical subordination that has nothing to do with obedience. So we're talking about a world system here. That's what Paul's talking about. Paul calls it being godless in the cosmos. This is what Zizek describes, that there is a sacrificial relationship to ourselves. He's reading Freud, and Freud is describing how, you know, Freud is seeing people in the clinic that are neurotic, they're masochistic, they're suicidal. And so he's trying to, to give an etymology of the human disease. And Freud assumes that neurosis is just a type of the human problem. In other words, he doesn't think neurotics are peculiar. He just thinks they have an aggravated form of what everybody has. It's just that some of us or some people can cope. And he, uh, Freud's definition of what a healthy person is, is somebody who can function in society, which is a pretty low bar for mental health. He's trying to say, okay, what, you know, why is it that people are self-punishing? You know, that is the peculiar human sickness. You know, I think this is there that Paul describes in Romans 7, that kind of self-antagonism that one could see uh, giving rise to suicidal ideations. In chapter 8, actually, he goes into uh, great detail and expands upon kinds of human suffering. But those sufferings, in fact, are bearable. In other words, the worst kind of human suffering are not those things that are put upon us necessarily, but it's that thing that we would do to ourselves. And I think that gets at what Freud is saying. So, this may all sound, it's almost sounds strange to you to say, oh, this is too weird. But I think we always have to go back and say, well, wait a minute. Remember what we're saying, we're trying to, to describe is, is already weird. And that is why do people hurt themselves? Why are people their own worst enemies? Why are people self-punishing? And so Freud explains this through the tripartite system. And he comes to this fairly late in his understanding. This is kind of the middle middle period of Freud. Uh, he writes beyond the pleasure pr principle and the superego and the id. So in, in beyond the pleasure principle, he hits upon this three-part system, the ego, the superego, and the id. And then he expands upon this, and this is where he comes up with the death drive. The death drive is arising from a combination you know, the id is just the it. The id is the, uh, to call it the unconscious may, uh, because actually the superego is partly unconscious. But anyway, there is this thing that we do to ourselves that Freud is trying to explain. Freud is a little bit strange in that he's, he said, oh, this is just biology. 
he's actually making it a cosmology that this is the way the the universe works so what lacan and zizek are doing they're taking freud and putting him in a different register taking him out of the register of science you know freud wanted to be a scientist you know lacan says well this goes beyond you know this is this goes beyond science that's not what we're doing and they put it in the register of language so that we're really dealing with the role of language and and they're going to rename the three registers so the ego they call the imaginary and they call it the imaginary lacan calls it the imaginary because he thinks it's imaginary <laughs> it's not real by the way lacan says i never go beyond freud i'm always just working with freud and there's the sense that that's almost true it's just that he's always doing freud in this new register freud tells the story about babysitting his grandson and the the little boy you know when his mother would leave he would just con- he would cry uncontrollably they he could never comfort him and this particular day though the mother left and suddenly the, the boy was entertaining himself and he had a a spool with some thread and you know freud said you know describes all the things that he could have done with that and what he what but what he actually did he began to throw the spool he was out of his crib and he began to throw the spool up where he couldn't see it and he in german baby talk i don't know much german baby talk but he went da gone it's gone he began to talk in other words here here he's he's entered into speech and then he begins to pull on the thread and the spool would appear and he would go fort anybody know german i hope i'm not messing up german baby talk here but gone here which of course that's all you need that's that is the binary of language presence absence and the child was playing this game and freud's point with it is that he's actually playing this game controlling appearance and absence you know what the uncontrollable part of his relationship to his mother he couldn't control it she'd leave he should come he had no control over it. but he can play this game and he has total control i'm just doing an illustration here so if i if you start thinking man this i'm just illustrating something at the same time in other words that lacan takes this and says oh look here is the child's entry point into language and in a footnote freud also describes on this same day that there is a mirror in the hallway you know and the old mirrors are kind of up in a you know off the ground a little bit and the little boy looked in the mirror and he played the same game he said you know, for there I that's me in the mirror. I mean, he was using the same language, but he meant me. And then he would squat down. Then I confuse my German here. He would say, "I'm gone." You know, he would he was playing hide and seek. I may be taking you further than you want to go. This is actually was actually my entry point into psychoanalysis because in Japan, I I had begun to read a psychoanalytic researcher. This was a popular level book. His name was Takeo Doi. And Doi is a part of what is called the Honjin Rome. And this is that we're going to explain what it means to be Japanese to the Japanese. Doi's teacher had studied under Freud in Vienna and brought he is the one who brings psychoanalysis back to Japan. And Doi then describes, and this is true in Japan, you know, I think it must be, you know, peekaboo with the little baby. You play peekaboo. I used to play hide and seek with my daughter, you know, when she was little. I'd say, okay, you go hide. And she would just, she would just put her hands over her eyes and say, okay, I'm hiding. And of course, I could just sit there and read my book and say, I can, oh, where's Erin? I can't see her. <laughs> And she'd stay there quite a while. 
<laughs> in other words, the child is, is the, there, there's this kind of basic lack of awareness. And then there is the discovery of the image in the mirror. At the same time, there is the discovery, the entry into language. And so this is why Lacan and Zizek are calling this the mirror stage, because this is the point in which entry into socialization language, it begins. But the point with, with Freud is that, and, and Lacan is building on this, you've already got a divide in the person between there's the ego, but then there is the, you know, the child looking and saying, that's me. In other words, there's a subject-object division. And of course, part of what is happening with this is the Oedipus complex, you know, whether you believe that or not, the, the point is that the child in some way puts himself in or herself. Herself is more problematic, actually. It, or, actually, Freud's always talking about little boys. That the child cathects or takes the father image into himself so that he, you know, the father is this punishing figure. And, you know, so what the, the, the child's relationship to the father becomes the superego relationship to the ego. Okay, that's the basic structure of Freudian psychoanalysis with the understanding, yeah, but what's taking place between this division between the subject and the object, the superego and the ego, is there is this unconscious kind of punishing relationship to the self that is set up. And so Lacan picks up Romans 7, and Zizek actually develops this and says everything that we're doing in psychoanalysis is contained in Paul's picture in Romans 7. And that is, what is the ego? Well, you don't even need to think very long because it's just ego. It's there in Greek. That's just Paul's word for I. There is the superego, which is the law, what Lacan is going to call the symbolic order. And then there is the body of death, what Freud calls the id, and what Lacan calls the real. What gets lost in all of this is the actual biological body, that our bodies get written over. Who we are gets written over with this symbolic system. In a sense, the most mysterious part of a Lacanian psychoanalysis is the what Lacan calls the real, what G, you know, what Freud called the id. But actually, it's also the most concrete. It's just the biological body. So remember, in both Romans 7 and here in Ephesians 2, what is being described concerns a problem with the flesh. And so what, we are, what I'm trying to do by giving you all this information is to say, what is the flesh in Paul? And obviously, it's not the literal physical body, because Christ incarnate, Christ in the flesh, is going to resolve or relieve this problem. And the question is how? What does what is it that Christ does? And in both Romans and Romans six and seven, several times he'll use the same word he uses here in Ephesians, and that's the word katargatai. In many of our Bibles they translate it as abolish. In Romans, you know, it has him uh, Christ abolishing the law. But of course, Christ doesn't abolish the law. In other words, if we're saying the law is this symbolic system that we're written over with, that is inclusive of Jew, Gentile, circumcision, uncircumcision, it's actually inclusive of male, female. In other words, Paul, when he says that you are no longer male or female, he's not saying that we're to be neutered. He's not doing away with any of these categories. I, I really don't even think he's doing away with slave free, right, in Galatians. I think, he, I think he's undermining that category. But that is the, the semantic load that we would put upon the flesh is the problem of the flesh that is resolved in Christ. There's nothing wrong with the human body. 
There's nothing wrong, in fact, with nature. The God's good creation is pronounced good in Genesis. And so what we're saved from is not nature. It's not our bodies. You know, it's this kind of exponential desire that gets attached to a semantic load that is put upon a reification of the flesh. That is, that the load of meaning is put in circumcision, uncircumcision. Uh, the body is made to bear a, a meaning system, or, you know, the symbolic system is made to bear that which it cannot bear. That is a description of the human problem in Freud, but I think that is what, at least, that is an illustration of what Paul must be talking about in Romans and Ephesians. You know, what's, what's the problem and how do we solve it? Paul, is the, the id the death drive then? It arises from the id, but actually, you know, the death drive is in a Lacanian, well, this is true of Freud too. The death drive works in and through the unconscious. That is, and it goes to through the superego and is carried out on the ego. That is, why do people cut themselves? Why do they, you know, whatever it is that, whatever masochistic system it is. So the death drive actually is the mo, it, it is the driving force in the human subject. And it's not localized in any of these places, but yes, to, to, connect it primarily with the id, I think is correct, because it arises from this relationship that is largely an unconscious, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, and what I want to do, I don't do, as Paul says. He can't get a handle on it. He can't grip this thing. And of course, what he's describing is his relationship to the law. This thing's killing me. Who will rescue me from this body of death? You know, obviously, as a Christian, we can't go with the atheistic theology of Zizek and Lacan, because what they would say, this is, all, this is as good as it gets. You've got death drive, and actually the subject, or, you know, the very dynamic of the subject is this incongruity, is this self-antagonism is this agonistic struggle that Paul is describing. In a Zizekian system, you don't want to get rid of that, because to get rid of it is to get rid of the human subject. That is the subject. And so that's part of Lacanian, you know, if you go to therapy in a Lacanian system, he develops what is called the 15-minute session, which is why it gets kicked out of the psychoanalytic association. And his idea is, you know, why do you go to a therapist? Uh, well, part of it is that there develops a, a dependence upon the therapist. And the therapist, he knows. He knows what's wrong with me. He's going to explain to me my sickness, right? That's why we pay 100 bucks for 15 minutes. And what Lacan's point is, that is your sickness. To imagine that somebody can explain to you the meaning of your neurosis is your neurosis. The death drive is the drive to overcome the death drive. In other words, I'm caught in this trap, and I can't get out. That's an Elvis Presley song, isn't it? And the, you know, the, the more you pull, the, the, the tighter the trap closes. I think that's the way that human desire functions, you know, that it is a painful desire in that it's insatiable. You can't get a grip, and the, more, the harder you try, this is the compulsion to repeat in Freud. The compulsion to repeat is the compulsion to in some way overcome my sickness, but of course my sickness is I'm compulsively repeating the same thing over and over in an attempt to come out with a different outcome. That, that's the sickness, that's the disease, that's the Freudian disease, or, the, or in, in a psychoanalytic understanding, 
at a minimum, I think at least that is illustrative of something like what Paul is describing. I, what I get out of all this stuff and all these classes that Paul's been doing, it really boils down to something kind of simple. And that is, is that Paul is using all these different illustrations and psychoanalytic, all this different stuff to say that we literally really are in the business of killing ourselves and each other and God. So, you know, why do people kill themselves? They don't kill themselves because of the picture in Romans 8 that they're persecuted. You know, he, he lists all the sufferings. In chapter 7, he's describing why somebody would put the gun in their mouth. I know, that's terrible. I shouldn't talk that way. But but I, I think people really have mental... In other words, our own worst enemy is what we're describing here. This is what drives us crazy. This is where I, I believe that neurosis and psychosis are sometimes very much connected to what I'm describing. Not always, but can be. You know, you've been talking about circumcision kind of negatively tonight. And last week, you, you mentioned it in, in a more positive light as, you know, Abraham, it was given to Abraham as, as, you know, the idea that I can do this even when I've, you know, even when you've mutilated yourself or, you know, without the, you know, the organ you need for reproduction. It, it was almost an idea. Of, I mean, at least that's kind of what I took from what you said, but it's, it's the orientation to circumcision that got, that changed things for, for Paul, right? When he starts talking about circumcision, I mean, not that circumcision is is important either way now, but when it was given to Abraham or when Abraham did that, it was it had positive meaning, but that changed over time. Or am I missing no, what you're it. saying about? No, that's exactly it. Okay. But yeah, all it meant for Abraham, here's a sign. Oh, you, you know, uh, Abraham, you might think that you have the power of life. And I put you in this situation in which you're as good as dead. You're wife's womb is dead. You're over a hundred years old. You're as good as dead. You have cut yourself off from your family, from the way in which you would make your name great. In other words, all of that, the capacity for propagation for the family, that Abraham's entire life has been an embrace of, the, of his mortality and his incapacity for life within himself. I think that's the good meaning of circumcision, that here is the mark that God gives life. And quite literally, in the case of Abraham, you know, have procreating, as with Jesus, another miraculous birth, that it's God that gives life. And for Abraham, Isaac was the sign, you know, of here's the, your life continued in your son. I don't know that Abraham even had a concept of his own survival, but he saw himself surviving in his son. And so, you know, if God had said to Abraham, Abraham, slit your throat, he would have had no problem with that because it's not really about him. It's about his having a son. And so I think that's the, the picture is that circumcision can have a positive meaning. But of course, what's being described in the castration complex in Freud I think is actually what circumcision becomes for the Jews, and that it was meant to prevent that we become our own fathers, that we have the power of life. You know, this is the, the thing in a Freudian picture. Who is the father? Who is the superego? And who is the ego? You are. <laughs> you're, you're your own father. You know, that's the sickness, because it's a relationship within the self in which the law, the superego, the symbolic, is this oppressive force. What's being oppressed is the ego. But, of course, you're playing both roles. You're the father and you're the child. I think we would be our own father. That's the castration complex, in which we, you know, Freud talks about cathecting the father image into ourselves. It, it is the picture of having life within ourselves right? And of course, this gets sick. I mean, the, the human sickness, we can see it in what people do to themselves and others in this kind of oppressive relationship to the symbolic order, the law. You know, the law is just, it's this order that is part of who they are. That touches upon both the negative and the positive. I think it's no accident that Freud, the Jew, 
talks about the castration complex. You know, again, I'm just illustrating uh, what I think is there. This is not dogma, dogma or anything like that. But at least I think it touches upon the truth that we, we are hitting on here. Let me talk a minute about the philosopher Michael Henry. He begins with the realization that experience of life, pure subjective experience from within, contains the only direct phenomenological access to life. Life reveals itself in itself through the flesh. I think this is what Wittgenstein is saying, that everything else presents itself from a distance. But our immediate experience of, of life you know, is there, and then we would pose a gap between the perceiver and the perceived, between the subject and the object. And so in Michael Henry's exposition of the word become flesh in John, he points out that if this is the way the word becomes human, then relationship with God is to be had in and through the flesh. I think that's exactly right. That is, it's our embodied selves. It's our, you know, it's the uh, it's the flesh of Christ. The flesh is not an obstacle, but is the locus of our identity with God. The phenomenological, the human, the you know, in our humanity, not an escape from our humanity. We come to who God is. And this explains why the word becoming flesh is revelation. It, it's not that another body among many has, has appeared, but the flesh of the word is the revelation. To say the word became flesh is not to add something to the word, it's to say the truth of the flesh. And this is the cogito as it should be, without any gap the subject and object of reflection. It's pure revelation, and there is not, as with ordinary human words, any possibility for duplicity or lying or misrecognition. And as Henry puts it, because the Word has become incarnate in Christ's flesh, the identification with the flesh, with this flesh, is the identification with the Word to eternal life. You know, we eat we partake of Christ. I think that's why we have that such almost crude literalism on the part of Christ. But I, I think he's not just talking about communion. He's talking about the whole Christian life. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood. How, how crude, how literal. But I think that, that the point is being made by Christ, this is the way to eternal life, not a departure from the flesh, but a full incarnation of who we are as Christ was fully incarnate. And he says, I will raise them up on the last day. And so the, the danger is that we might reduce the body of Jesus by allowing some symbolic significance to reduce it to a sort of mystical writing pad. This is actually a Freud. Does everybody know what a, the mystical writing pad? You know, it's actually, Freud was actually referring to the little, We all, I don't know if you had him when, I was poor, you know, and we we couldn't afford expensive toys, but we had the, you know, you have the wax paper over the ink pad, and then you write on it, and it appears, and you pull it up, and it disappears. And Freud's saying that's the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious, that we have this thing inscribed on our conscious self, then we pull it up, and then it's in the unconscious. The danger is that we'll make Jesus just another blank slate. And so step one is to acknowledge the primacy of the incarnate Jesus. I think this is the Chalcedonian formula. I think this is the significance of talking about fully God and fully human. The mission of Jesus is nothing other than the eternal. We're talking about eternality here, the eternal generation of the Son. There's nothing secondary. There's nothing shadowy. There's nothing analogous a wrong use, maybe, of the word analogous. Jesus is the reality of God incarnate, the reality of God in the flesh. And Jesus is the absolute truth and, and, and absolute morality. The mystery of God revealed as Trinity is not a fleshless, this is John Bear. You know, we, what we tend to do with the, in the beginning was the word, 
is to imagine that's asarkos, as if Jesus, the word is not enfleshed. Bear's point is, no, that's not talking about anything apart from the incarnation. That's talking about Christ's incarnation. It's not a pre-incarnate Christ. This most anti-Gnostic of texts, the Gospel of John, we create an, uh, we, we make it into a Gnostic text by reading Christ as not, refer, you know, the word not referring to the gospel, which is, that's just a simple understanding. We say logos, you mean gospel. And we think, oh no, it's that's the pre-incarnate, you know, Platonic Christ that pre-existed. That's not what John's talking about. And so it's not a disembodied heavenly realm, but it's an embodied earthly realm. And then in turn, all human bodies are accord accorded their full meaning as they participate in this fullness of incarnate significance. That is what morality is, right? To, to love your neighbor is to be incarnate for your neighbor, to be there for your neighbor. And to hate your neighbor, you know, is kind of that disincarnate shame relation in which I really can't be there for you. I'm busy, you know, sorry. I'm hiding. That's Michael Henry. So he he's giving us a, a kind of philosophical view, but we I think we could come at this from several ways. The thing that I would add to this is everything that you read this week from Walter Wink. Uh, I think that Wink is just describing this kind of you know oppressive, the hostility of the flesh written over with the law that is undone in Christ, which is what is being described in Ephesians that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ as we inhabit the body. We're no longer divided in ourselves from one another. He himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the dividing wall. The hostility, the enmity of the flesh is undone. I think what we've done tonight is describe that enmity of the flesh and how he, he's undone it. Uh, that entering into this peace is synonymous with the meaning that he gives us in the incarnation. This is the ground of meaning. And I think this is kind of a self-validating. In other words, what this, in, in Michael Henry's terms, this is kind of a self-evident understanding. So there is no gap between I think and I am uh, that, we, that the word of truth fills in this gap. And so the the, the way that I describe this, I won't do it again, but, you know, I think I, all I've done is just illustrate for you when Paul says in Romans 7-1, the law dominates the man for whatever time he lives. And then he describes that in terms of uh, uh, a sexual relationship. Are you all familiar with this passage? Uh, what we've done tonight, I think what Ephesians does is illustrate Romans 7 one to 3 he said, you know, the idea of the, the, the living husband or the husband, dead or alive, is definitive of the wife. And, of course, the wife there is just representative of all of us. And then he's going to say, but we've all died. We're all, we all find ourselves in the place of the dead husband. What he's describing is it really doesn't, he's not really talking about adultery or consorting or what he's really talking about is a relationship to the law and how the law is suspended, katargatai, you know, there in Romans 6 and 7. And he repeats the word here in Ephesians 2. Our translations, you know, the, the idea that it's been abolished, but the only thing, the law hasn't been abolished. Maleness and femaleness haven't been abolished. Sir, even circumcised and uncircumcised. That's not been abolished for Paul, but he's going to say it's been the punishing aspect of that has been suspended. That is, the punishing relationship that we have to the law is suspended. So Paul will demonstrate, you know, he'll circumcise Timothy, but then he refuses to circumcise Titus. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. Then he says to the Galatians, I just wish you'd cut the whole thing off. I mean, he uses the crudest of language. Just go ahead and castrate yourselves. <laughs> so, uh, in a sense, it's almost a Freudian reference, because the, the point is, this is really what you're doing in reifying circumcision, in demanding that all Christians would be circumcised. 
uh, the point being, I, I think we can get lost in the religiosity of it and and fail to... No, I think Paul's really talking about something here. We can really make this concrete. Whether my illustrations are adequate or whether psychoanalysis or, you know, I think that the exploration of these things hopefully are helpful in our understanding of, of Paul. You know, that maybe the 2, 11 to 12, what he's talking about clear through chapter two is circumcision and uncircumcision. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, you know. What he's describing is this divided corporate body. So we can be divided in many ways, uh, and that's kind of the Pauline corpus. We can be divided male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, circumcision, uncircumcision, or the law of the mind and the law of the body is the way he talks about it in Romans 7. We can be pitted against ourselves. Let me read verse 15. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, Christ abolishes the enmity or the antagonism. He, he abolishes that enmity. So the semantics of the flesh is undone. And we have the meaning of Christ that displaces that. We've changed up the basics that we're working with here, right? The way that Christianity often functions is primarily with wrath. The wrath of God, punishment, and that's kind of foundational. But I think that we, we've said that that's actually a misunderstanding of, uh, of the foundation. I said that wrath, death, and transgression can be viewed from a human experiential viewpoint as we all experience these things first or second hand. And we know what they are on a human experiential level. The human centric individual salvation view comprises my transgression of a transcendent law, offending God, and then God's wrath being poured out on me because of my transgression, which then leads to my death. When viewed through a Christ-centered lens, with the pocketostasis in mind, they take on cosmic qualities that transcend the intensely personal individualistic viewpoint that most churches teach. The contrasting view sees death as an orientation that the creation is currently suffering under. Death leads to transgression, not primarily of a law, but of a failure to walk in the good works of Christ God has ordained for us to walk in. It is a failure of us participating in that. This transgressing of the way of the incarnate Son puts us in a position of being under God's wrath, which according to Romans 1 is being turned over or let go of um, to experience the results of works we have chosen to walk in and suffering that results of those choices. That punishment takes on the meaning of remediation, not of retribution, and it leads to restoration, not eternal punishing. Likewise, good works, restoration, and grace can be viewed through a hyper-individualistic lens that sees grace working to remedy our legal trouble through the good works of Christ, thus restoring us to a correct standing with God and changing, you know, God's view of us. The problem is one of standing in disfavor and grace is a solution that only comes through substitution. Accounts are set right by legal means and consent or belief is the means of salvation. The other view in this scenario should look more like grace and restoration being God's orientation towards us always, not something that happens as a purely legal act or some particular moment in time as the son is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The cross becomes less about substitution and more about a method of defeating the enemies. Instead of belief as the ground of salvation, participation becomes the means of restoration. Good works come from communion with Christ, walking in his ways, being in Christ, etc., and are a result of this relationship, not the means of it. So in terms of the, the way we were talking tonight, I think evil is what we would do is invest a fullness of meaning in the flesh, in the finite, in something within the cosmic order. The resolution to evil is the recognition of the picture of apocatastasis, this cosmic redemption, this recapitulation, in which we enter into the fullness of who we are and who who Christ is. And I think that's what you just described between the difference between punishment, you know, as a kind of retribution in which that is a, a kind of end in itself and penal substitution that I think is just another case in point of a reification of the law, right? The law is made absolute. 
uh, that's not the solution. That's the problem that is undone in Christ. I know this is a terrible way to talk, but what is being described is that Christianity, as we often have it, is an aggravation and repetition of what I think is the primary human problem, the primary human predicament. And of course, what we lose in the notion of retributive wrath and all of that is our whole legal system. I mean, I mean, our legal system is built upon almost not completely, but retribution, right? It's not really a remedial understanding, and violence is built into the system. I think a failed theological understanding must in part be behind our failed legal system. In other words, this is the, really the way that we work this out. But it's not, you know, to blame it on penal substitution. That that's that may miss the point. No, this is just what people always do. That we're always in the business of reifying the law. And when you reify the law, retribution, violence, wrath becomes an end in and of itself. And what is being described, on the other hand, is a remedial understanding in which that is undone within us and with the, the whole cosmic order in our realization, participation in recapitulation. I did some work this week looking at the words. In two one in two two it says your death and trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. I, it just popped into my head four one, which we haven't gotten to in our reading yet, but knowing that Paul says I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you by which you have been called. And what really stood out to me through chapters one and two really was the blessing, the adoption into the family, and the inheritance, the riches of grace, and the connection with that to our calling, to walk in the manner that's consistent with this inheritance that's been given. Now, the word inheritance is used, or heirs, I think in just first two chapters six times and then riches is used six times he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that's verse three and verse seven forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace verse 11 of chapter one we have obtained an inheritance 14 sealed with the holy spirit a pledge of our inheritance and verse 18 is pretty significant that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints. There's also in chapter two, verse four, but God being rich in mercy. And then verse seven, showing the surpassing riches of his grace. And then in chapter three, it says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. There's the inheritance again, but that just really stood out to me as there's kind of a, maybe a word play um, with verse four, one, because walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have received. That verb kaleo, which is walk, is the root word for, it's, at least it's it's in the word inheritance. It's called eklerothemon, so you can hear it. There's a, a calling theme there. It's even in the word, I urge you, I call you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, kaleo. So all of that stood out to me as the positive side Obviously, the the riches of God's grace and grace is used, <laughs> no surprise, thirteen times. Mm. Um, and the inheritance being that which we need to hear about, we need to know about this. This is the good news, especially given the first few verses of chapter two, which we've been talking about. The theme is there too, because there's adoption and then children of wrath. So there's a contrast: sons of disobedience. Looking through those words, especially focusing on inheritance, I appreciate what you're saying about the concreteness of it and the dark stuff you often take us to, which you're good at, as you say, in chapter two and the mechanics of what we've been saved from. Because, you know, those first few verses in chapter two really meant something after this class, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived 
in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. The practical stuff being walk in a manner worthy of this inheritance. And that's good too. But what you said, what you have um, presented in, in all this uh, division in our psyche um, and the division in our societies and selves really adds a lot to the stuff out. Well, just say I passed over it this week. You went right to the good stuff. And it took me I to bring did. out the darkness. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. Good cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah, no, there's so much in this chapter that I, I didn't touch upon. I was just thinking as you were saying that, you know, he says that, you know, you're saved by grace, not by works. Obviously, you can take that all wrong. But then the next sentence, he says, but you're saved for good works. Hmm. And, and obviously, he's using the word work there in, in two different ways. But it's also a, it's almost like the, it, if we were thinking in terms of the circumcision, uncircumcision, the first work is kind of the kind of I am my own father or I am my own giver of, of salvation. And the second one is, oh, the, this is a work of God in us that we participate in. The first is a work of the law. I think it is talking about reification of the law. So I did a, uh, an article way back, and I didn't have you read it, on, you know, uh, what if what if government is evil? And I talked about John Howard Yoder and his idea of a radical subordination. And, of course, I think that's the picture here, that, there, that the, what is being described with our citizenship in the kingdom of God is that the, this power, and I think this is what Walter Wink is describing, the power that is put on display in Christ is an undermining of the power of death that the state exercises. Now, how you work that out practically, uh, I don't know, but if we can get a picture of the idea that what the state does is capital punishment, war, violence, you know, uh, a kind of police state, and and recognize that the revolution, the, the, the politics of Jesus in, in its display of power is an undermining of that. And I think Hannah Arendt is insightful because she pits the notion of power over and against violence. We often picture the state ability to met out violence. But of course, I think the power, the real power is there in uh, the, the picture that Wink is giving us over and against the powers, you know, what we call the powers. Uh, having read Ephesians 2, and in the context of Paul's claim in Colossians 1.15, the enmity that Jesus resolves on the cross, maybe this is obvious, whose enmity? You know, it, it is humanity's enmity that is slack, but how does it create unity? Or maybe the question should be, how does unity address this enmity? I talked about being drawn to kind of the first appearance of enmity in Genesis that, you know, in the Proto-Evangelium when Adam and Eve are told that there'll be enmity because of what they've, they've done. I've always been taught that enmity is a blessing, something divinely put in place to stop sin from completely dominating by keeping us at war with the serpent. And I don't think that view is wholly without merit, but if enmity is viewed as something with a power of its own and not just our posture towards the serpent, there may be a different way to understand this text in view of apocatastasis in the light of this week's reading with its description of the abolishing of enmity. It's become clear to me that enmity is an interloper. And um, I said the arrival of enmity in Genesis 3 seems to be on the same order as the wrath of God being a giving up to uncleanliness and vile affections and a reprobate mind that he Paul talks about in Romans one and the idea found in Genesis three, that husbands will rule over their wives. Natural results from sin are described in these texts. They don't proscribe God's arbitrary response to a legal situation in regard to husbands and wives in Genesis. It's a result of our first parents falling prey to the deception of the serpent. In this view, the couple in the garden have changed their allegiance from being citizens or free people in the kingdom of life to being slaves of an alternate kingdom oriented not to life but to death. And this came from the desire, or it came from a duality, a, a desire that led to a duality that split the Eudenic unity. 
the tree of knowledge of good and evil is at the very least a descriptor of a duality of good and evil, which sets the stage for enmity to appear. And it's the tool that a deathly orientation uses to produce sin, hate, division, and the awareness of others as entities that should be excluded or part of the mechanisms of enmity. Adam and Eve's speech just prior to this have demonstrated the nascent power of the grip of enmity. When you gave me the serpent to see me, they answered when God asked them questions driven by guilt and shame, blame and anger are now the guiding principles of speech and idea. The enmity which springs into life between the woman and the serpent and between their seeds is not something solvable from within the new order. And um, the answer will come from outside the system and still be part of it. The crushing of the head and the bruising of the heel described in Genesis 3 are not primarily descriptors of the amount of damage. Each side will inflict as a venomous bite on the heel is just as deadly as a crushed head. They are instead a description of the method that will be employed to achieve victory over the serpent is deceptive speech. In one of the most uh, enigmatic proclamations in scripture, the solution is given. A sacrifice will be made, but not a sacrifice that slakes the enmity of either God or man or the serpent for that matter, but a sacrifice that is actually the way God rules. A wielding of power that breaks down the wall of enmity by allowing the lesser power full access and not confronting it with a more powerful death on the order of the pagan gods where the most violent God is the winner, but to a costly revelation of unremitting love. And yet more than that, to quote from finding peace in a hostile universe, it's not that Christ simply persuades us of the love of God, the moral influence theory, though he may do that, the specific nature of the work of Christ is called for by the specific nature of the human predicament. There's a dividing wall of hostility obstructing peace and goodwill among all human classes. And this dividing wall is inclusive of a carnal hostility. I said enmity is the source of division and it is the opposite of unity. It becomes the ground for hate under enmity and abolishing enmity appears to involve participation in the body of Christ and all its diversity and being willing to be involved in sacrifice as we then engage with others. And then I quoted a little bit from Wendell Berry's poems. So he goes to the care of neighbors. He goes into the care of neighbors. He goes to the potluck supper, a dish from each house for the hungry of every house. Seed into the care for one another and for the good gifts of heaven and earth. Come into the dance of the community, joined in a circle hand in hand, the dance of the eternal love of women and men for one another and of neighbors and of friends for one another. Always disappearing, always returning, calling his neighbors to return to think again of the care of flocks and herds of gardens and fields of woodlots and forest and the uncut groves, calling them separately and together, calling and calling. He goes forever towards the long restful evening, the croak of the night heron over the river at dark. Yeah. <laughs> Poetic. Uh, Wendell Berry. I love yeah. those Wendell Berry poems. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good. I put up the article on the hostility of the universe, and I'm, will, I'm referencing William Frazier there. William Frazier is kind of this obscure priest, uh, but uh, I, I really like William Frazier's. He's, he's got a, just a brilliant article, and he's put out a little book, and in that article I'm referencing, if I'm not mistaken, William Frazier, uh, on a kind of a picture of a hostile universe, a universe of enmity, and then the alternative that, that, that you described there. Question on the sub-question, that whose real anger is released onto whom? in Jesus. I know it's not God towards Jesus. So what is the answer? <laughs> I think is it, it's, th it is the hostility. I think this is a good Rene Girard answer here, that Jesus is the scapegoat. Uh, it is human hostility, human, human enmity. And the way that jo Jonathan described it very beautifully is that, in other words, there is the exercise of power that is a kind of enmity that if you think of it in terms of the high priest, one man must die that the nation would be saved. That's Girardian scapegoat language. But of course, there's the sense that everything that Israel is, or they imagine themselves to be, depends upon the death, the killing of Christ, because mm -hmm. they're, they, they feel like they're going to come undone. So it's clearly human hostility, but it's human hostility given the explanation that we've given it tonight. 
Yeah. In other words, that's what drives the universe, a, a, a dark cosmos. Mm. It is it is built upon an originary violence. Uh, and what we've been describing is an originary peace that we can participate in. So I think it is that that kind of cosmic vision. All right, Matt said he had to go because he did not want to create enmity between him and his wife. <laughs> uh, and probably I should let everybody go. And I, if you do come on Thursday, I will try to complete my thought tonight. And that is to tie in the Walter Wink stuff. I may repeat myself a little bit. That helps. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. See Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.